0: We're in the book of Chronicles, and we are, I believe we are, uh, we're in Chronicles chapter 12, if I would recall, because I was actually reading through the book of Chronicles uh, yesterday on a few other things that I was reflecting on, and sometimes I just lose my place, Um, but just to make sure, I believe we're in the... Yeah, we're, we're in Chronicles chapter 12, that's great. Yeah, so that's where we're going to start. That's where we're going to spend some time uh, in the reading of the word today. I have nothing planned other than just to hear what the Lord has to say to us. Uh, good morning, Anita, good to see you. Good morning, Wentworth, good to see you as well. And so we have people from all over the world in different time zones coming together uh, to read the word of God. So Lord, speak to us today. Lord, as we come before you, we're asking three questions. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? What are you revealing concerning people? What are you revealing concerning each of us individually? Lord, convict our hearts today. Lord, speak to us as we engage in your word today. Father, bless us in this time, Lord, that you may, uh, Lord, give us revelation. Lord, reveal to us who you are. Give us revelation. Reveal your heart to us. Give us revelation. Reveal your plan for us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to read verse 1, and it says this Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left, and hurling stones and shooting arrows with bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. The chief was Ahazer, then Joash, then the sons of Shema, the Gibeothite, Jezeel and Pelet, the sons of Azamaveth, Barakah, and Jehu, the Ananathite, Ishmaiah, the Gibeonite, Barakah, the Barakah, and Jehu, the Ananathite, Ishmaiah, the Gibeonite, a mighty man among the thirty, and over the thirty, Jeremiah, Jehazael, Johanan, and Jehoshaphat, the Gederathite, Eluzai, Jeremoth, Beliah, Shemirah, and Shephatiah of Heraphite. Sorry, Shep- Shephatiah the Heraphite, Elkanah, Jeshiah, Azarel, Joser, and Joshobiam the Korites, and Joelah, and Zebedah, the sons of Jerem of Gedor. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like faces of a lion and were swift as gazelles on the mountains. Ezar the first, Obadiah, the second, Eliab, the third, Mishmana, the fourth, Jeremiah, the fifth, Atai, the sixth, Eliel, the seventh, Johanan, the eighth, Elzabad, the ninth, Jeremiah, the tenth, Megbana, the eleventh, these were, the son, these were from the sons of Gad, captains of the army. The least was over a hundred, and the greatest was over a thousand. These are the ones who crossed over the Jordan in the first month, when it had overflowed all its banks, and they put to fight all those in the valley, to the east and to the west. The sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold, and David went out to meet them, and answered and said to them, If you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if you betray me to my enemies, since there are, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of your fathers look and bring judgment. And the spirit came upon Amasai, the chief of the captains, and he said, we are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troop, and some from Manasseh defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul. But they did not help them from the lords of the Philistines sent them away by agreement, saying, "He may defect f- to his master Saul and endanger our heads. When he went to Ziklag, those of Manasseh who defected to him were Adna, Joszaba, Jedael mikhail or michael joseph elihu and Zelathai, the captains of the thousands who were from manasseh and they helped david against the bands of raiders for they were all mighty men of valor and they were all captains in the army for at the time they came to david day by day to help them until it was a great army like the army of god now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him, according to the word of the Lord. Of the sons of Judah, bearing shield and spear, 6,800 armed for war. Of the sons of Simeon, the mighty men of valor, fit for war, 7,100. The sons of Levi, 4,600. Joeda, the leader of the Aaronites, and with them 3,700. Sadoc, a young man, a valiant warrior, And from his father's house, 22 captains. Of the sons of Benjamin, relatives of Saul, 3,000. Until then, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800. Mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come and make David king. Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200, and their brethren were at their command. Zebulon, there were 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks, and Aftali, 1,000 captains, and with them, 37,000 with shield and spear of the Danites who could keep battle formation, 20,600, and Asher, those who could go out to war, able to keep battle formation, 40,000 of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-trap of Manasseh from the other side of the Jordan, 120,000 armed for battle with every kind of weapon of war all these men of war who could keep ranks came to hebron with a loyal heart to make david king over all israel and all the rest of israel were of one mind to make david king and they were there with david three days eating and drinking for their brethren had prepared for them moreover those who were near to them far from as far away as issachar and nebulon and naphtali were bringing food on donkeys and camels on mules and oxen provision of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil, oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, And if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in the land of Israel with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of God back to us for we had not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shehor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from from Kirjath-Jerim. And David and all of Israel went to Bala Bala, to Kirjath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed so they are so they carried the ark of god on a new cart from the house of abinadab and uzzah and ahio drove the cart then david and all of israel played music before the lord with all their might singing on harps and string instruments on tambourines on cymbals and with trumpets and when they came to chidon's threshing floor uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand on the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord, because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez-Uzzah till this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Hmm. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, for the kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. Then David took more wives in Jerusalem and David begot more sons and daughters. And these are the names of their children whom they had in Jerusalem, Shamuah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elipelet, Noga, Nefek, Japhia, Halishamah, diliada sorry, and Eliphelet. Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? The Lord said to him, Go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. So they went up to Baal-perazim, And David defeated them there. Then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand, like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, they called the name of the place Baal Perazim. Then they left their gods there. David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. And the Philistines once again made raid on the valley. Therefore David inquired again of God and God said to him you shall not go up after them circle around them And come upon them in the front of the mulberry trees And it shall be when you hear a sound of the marching of the tops of the mulberry trees that Then you shall go into battle for God has not gone out before you to strike the camp of the philistines So David did as God commanded him and they drove back the philistines from Gibeon as far as Kessar then the fame of David went out went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought fear of him upon all nations." David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God to minister before him forever. Then David gathered all the children of Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord in its place when he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites and the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief and 120 of his brethren, of the sons of Merari, Asai the chief and 220 of his brethren, of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief and 130 of his brethren, of the sons of Elizaphan of Shemiah the chief, and two hundred of his brethren, of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief, and eighty of his brethren, of the sons of Uziel, Amminadab the chief, and one hundred and twelve of his brethren. Then David called Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites he called Uriel and Esaiah, Joel and Shemaiah, Eliel and Amminadab, and he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, sanctify yourselves you and your brethren that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites and appointed their brethren to be singers, accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harp, cymbals, and by raising the voice with resounding joy. So the Levites appointed Heman the son of Joel, and his brethren, Asaph, the son of Barakiah, and of their brethren, the sons of Merari, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them their brethren of the second ring, Zechariah, Ben, Jazael. Shemarioth Shemarimoth Julia Uni Eliab Beniah, Messiah Mattathiah Ma, sorry Mattathiah <laughs> Eliphela Mekniah Obed-Edom Jael the gatekeepers the singers Hemen, Asaph Ethan were to sound the symbols of bronze Zechariah Asiel Shema, Shemarimoth sorry Jael uni eliab messiah benaiah with strings according to alamoth metathiah eliphila Mekneh, obed edom Jael, azaziah to direct the harps of Shemeneth. chenaniah leader of the levites was instructed to charge the music because he was skillful Barakiah, elkanah were doorkeepers of the ark Shebaniah, josephat nathaniel so, Nathanael, Amasiah, Zechariah, Beniah, Eliezer, the priests, were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed, Edom, Jiah, doorkeepers for the ark. So, David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands went to bring. Up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. They were clothed with a robe of fine linen. And as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers and Chenaniah, the music master with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Thus, all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music and stringed instruments and harps. And it happened. As the Ark of the Lord came to the city of David, that Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart." despised him in her heart we're going to stop right here I want to just spend a few moments of reflection with you all uh, today on this particular reading Um, uh, there are many things here that the Lord is bringing to light to me today as I'm reading this text and i am compelled to share them with you i want to first preface by saying that uh, when we read the book of chronicles it's important for us to see what chronicles is in the grand story and yes we just went through a whole bunch of names i'm going to point that out we went through all these names these hebrew names are tough i'm just going to let you know ahead of time they're they're tough (laughs) uh they're tough uh but we're getting through it and as I talked about yesterday, my conviction is is that for many of us, even though we've been frustrated with uh, reading all these names, some of us we, we love it. There's some of us that just love this kind of stuff. Some of us are like, man, can we just get to the to the to the story? Can we get to the point? Um, but this is but what God is showing you is how important people are in the role that they play in God's grand story and in God's narrative and what God is doing on the earth and what God is accomplishing, because God is accomplishing it through these people, and each and every person, God is showing how important their role is in the grand picture, in the grand story of what God is doing. Remember, we, the main thought that really came out of our reading yesterday, as we were just spending time in reflection, is the thought that you matter. Every individual matters. Every person matters. You, you may think that what you do is small, And maybe people don't know your whole story, and maybe you don't have the popularity of David or of Saul, or you don't have the popularity of some of the big names that we see here in the text, the Solomons and the Samuels. You may not have the big title and the big name, and yet the Lord knows your name. And what's most important and most critical is for you to understand that, that the Lord knows your name. And that's all that actually matters is that he knows your name and that you matter. And I believe in knowing that it shapes you as well because not only does the lord know your name but he knows the names of those who you don't know the names of and even though those names often we can be inclined to think that those names aren't important to us yet god is saying that they are important their names are important We say their names because their names are important. Each and every individual, from the guy who's on the side of the road to the guy who's in the car, from the guy who's behind the cash register to the guy, no matter who they are, each and every person is important to God. Their names matter, and that was the conviction that we were that 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 that, that, at least that's what the Lord was convicting me of yesterday as I was just spending time in his word. And it really shapes how we treat people, it shapes how we look at people, knowing that these people, their names are written. God has their names in mind. There's not one name that God does not know, there's not one person that he does not know, and there's not one story he does not know, even though we don't know all the, the elements and the details to each and every person's story, and each and every person's story matters. And it's important, and I'm sure there are those of you here who have stories that no one has yet to hear, and yet there are stories of renewal, of restoration, of of, of of blessing and of grace, and of overcoming and perseverance. And for that, guys, it is God knows and God cares. God loves you. And it's a part of God's story. I say that because as we, see, as we read the book of Chronicles, I wanna preface this by saying that in the book of Chronicles, um, it almost seems like that this is a review Right? because if you've if you've been reading with us, you've been reading throughout the, the the story of of the establishing of the kingdom of God. and it's been messy up to this point, right? Um, this establishing of the kingdom of God first proceeding, or as an impetus, the nation of Israel. the nation of Israel came from a family, a family of Abraham, who God called to be the father of many nations. And now we're going from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to to Israel, and then from Israel to the 12 sons, the 12 sons to the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes now being the 12 nations, the 12 nations, who were in Egypt, left Egypt, and upon leaving Egypt, went across the wilderness to the land that they had already left because they were already there before. But because of the drought, they went to Egypt and they spent too much time in Egypt. And because they spent too much time in Egypt, they fell under oppression in Egypt. And now the Lord is sending them back. He calls Moses, Moses being the prophet who would lead them from their place of bondage to their place of purpose. And so he takes them from Egypt through the promised land and between was the promised land. And then and, and the pit stop at the promised land was Mount Sinai the mountain where they had an encounter where they met with God and there there was a promise that was made and a covenant that was made and upon the made upon the covenant being made these people making covenant with God to be the chosen people of God the people who would live distinct and holy from the rest of the world who would live with distinction who would live under a different rule under a different law under a different order who would live under the government and the righteousness of God Right? These people now have been called and set aside to be a nation of priests to show God what the kingdom of God looked like. To show, sorry, not to show God, but to show the world what the kingdom of God looked like. To show people what the character and the heart of God was like. And so that's what they did. And there they were given the law. They were given the guidelines, a means by which they can be these people. And yet what did we see? We saw them fail over and over again. That even though they were given the law, the law was ineffective in transforming their heart. Isn't it funny how we can make promises to God and in the end even while we made those promises to God that we could not keep those promises Isn't it funny how we're given rules and laws and yet the rules and the laws that we're given don't necessarily Transform us. I find it interesting how nowadays we have people who think that if you can just make stricter laws that that will transform people Laws don't change people Laws don't transform people as a matter of fact if the legal system and if laws transform people then there would not need to be police There would not need to be uh, prisons. There wouldn't need to be incarcerations. We wouldn't need to have a jail because because laws in and of themselves would transform people and even the enforcing of the laws don't. Isn't it funny how even with the institution of the death penalty, that capital crimes still haven't been reduced? Because even if you increase the punishment and the penalty for crime, it still doesn't change what's going on in the heart of man is that the man is deceitful, his heart is deceitful, his heart goes against the things that God wants and introducing a law does not does not empower them to actually become who God calls them to be. Actually, it empowers the prosecutor. The law is what gives the devil power, actually. It is the law. The scriptures tell us that the strength of sin is the law. Did you hear me? So when you impose law on people, a legal system on people, what what it should expose to you is how desperately people are in need of a transformation how desperately people are in need of a change of heart. And that's what we see in the children of Israel here. They are giving the law, but they did not change. We see proof of that because in the book of judges, it begins with them being these chosen people of God. And yet at the end of the book, it says that there is no King in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in the end, Israel looked just like Canaan child sacrifices, sex trafficking, murder, deceit, envy, thirst for power they look just like everybody else and yet they were given the law meaning the law was ineffective the law cannot do what needed to be done to cultivate and to create and to establish the kingdom of god through these people and yet they brought a prophet, and the, prophet, the prophets were always uh, arbiters of the law. They were the ones who were the watchmen of the law. They were the ones who, who, who would reveal the, uh, and speak the truth of the word of God and the law of God to the people. And yet the people wanted a king. They asked for Saul. Saul wasn't it. They asked for David. David was a man after God's own heart. But we see David's failures along the way, from David to Solomon, even though through David's line, there was a messianic king that was promised that the law would be established, but even through the Davidic line, we see a failure of kings over and over and over again. First Kings and second Kings is a list of all the failures of these kings, but we notice there's a history being written here. There's a history being written in this text, and now we get to First Chronicles. Notice we're walking through this. First Chronicles is in an awkward place in the scripture because First Chronicles is actually, if you, is, is, is chronologically written closer to the end you'd actually put it at the end of the books the the ezekiel's the isaiah's the zechariah's the ezra's the hosea's all these books actually came chronologically before the book of first chronicles and second chronicles first and second chronicles is actually one book it's just broken up into two parts because the the one book would have been too hard and too difficult uh, for the scribes to carry. And so they just broke it up into two: First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. I'm sorry if I'm talking fast because I want to get to my point here. But what we notice is is that even though the, the, the First Chronicles, if you read it, you read it, but there's a lot that has transpired between what has happened at the end of 2 Kings because we notice how the kings have all failed up to this point. And the book of Kings ends with the children of God going into Babylonian captivity as a result of their compromise to the law and the heart of God. As the result to them compromising, being a holy people who were distinct and separate from the rest of the world. As a result of that compromise, they have been infiltrated by the Assyrians, they have been infiltrated by the Babylonians, and now what we're going to be seeing over the next, uh, of a uh, century or so we're going to see a people who live in perpetual captivity they're in Babylonian captivity in Assyrian captivity Syrian captivity and yet here we are 1st Chronicles has been written after all of this 1st Chronicles is written when everybody has actually come back First Chronicles has been written after the temple has been rebuilt. The first Chronicles is written after they have returned back to the land of Israel as it had been promised to them. That they would return back to their nation and to their land to reestablish Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. After all of that, this book has been written. So it's written. We're reading this book in a particular awkward place because what Chronicles is meant to do is it's meant to remind the children of Israel. The whole remember We don't insert ourselves into the text. We back away from the text for a second and see what's actually transpiring. The author, the prophetic author of Chronicles is writing the book of Chronicles as a reminder to the people of what God has done in the history of humanity and in the history of mankind. His first word in the book is Adam. He literally starts from the beginning and he goes from Adam and goes through all the names and so he's reminding the people so while we're reading this we know that they end in attention at the end of second kings but but chronicles happens way later when the when this particular tension has been resolved. They have returned. They leave in captivity, so the attention of them being in captivity, they're back now. So this book is written as a means of reminding people of what God has done, but it's also written to inform the people that God's not done. Does anybody understand that? We don't know, there are many debates, there are many, uh, um, Theological debates about who the author of of Chronicles is, and and I don't want to get into all that now. Maybe we can do a Bible study at some point in time. But the short answer is is that we aren't entirely sure who wrote the book of Chronicles. Um, but we we can affirm its prophetic authority, and and maybe we'll do a Bible study on that as well. Who knows? Um, but if 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 anybody asks you. What is the whole point of the book of Chronicles? You know me, I'm a plain speaker. Even as I do the Revelation Bible study tonight with you guys, I speak plainly. I'm going to speak as plainly as I can, okay? Because I'm just, I'm a simple man. (laughs) I'm a simple man and I'm a simple thinker. Uh, I think as simply as I can, okay? I try to make things as simple as possible. And so, what's the simplest way now to describe the book of Chronicles? The book of Chronicles can simply be defined or to be characterized or to be summarized as, hey guys, this is what God has done, but God's not done yet. This is what God has done, but God isn't done yet. God's not done. This is what he has done, but he is not done. And what I love about how the author explains this and how the author articulates this, what I love about it is that he's explaining everything God has done. But he's explaining through the narrative of how he's done it through his people. Remember, I speak plainly. And, I, and I've put it as plainly as I can, fam. Thank you so much for the badges. Thank you so much for the gifts there. But I, I, I want to make sure I say this as plainly as I can as well. I'm just a plain guy. I'm a simple man. That's my wife. I don't got many needs. <laughs> I'm a very simple guy. Okay? Just give me some coffee in the morning and I'm good. God isn't doing anything without human participation and collaboration. That God has done great things, but these great things that God has done has been through the story of humanity. When he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, they, mankind filling the earth is the contemporaneous filling of the presence of God on the earth. He breathed his spirit, he literally poured himself into man and now mankind serves as, I love that, willing vessels. We are the vessels of God. We are the tangible presence of God on earth. I know that makes people uh, uh, get a little queasy and a little wheezy and a little mm-mm feeling some type of way. But the reality is that God has been done for a long time. Everything that he's doing, he's doing through humanity and he's doing through human participation. Why? Because by his word, he gave mankind authority and dominion on the earth. God will not contradict himself. And we see these, this little language all throughout and we're seeing this tone throughout the book of Chronicles. And the tone that we see throughout this book is, is we see the tone of, Hey guys, look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. But notice he keeps bringing up people's names, names keep coming up. Names keep coming up. All these names keep coming up because God is doing everything he's doing through the hands and the feet of these people. And anything that God is doing today, he's doing through people. That's why God called people. If God could do anything by himself because he chose willingly not to by just the virtue of his character, not that he can't, he won't. And yet God doing these things through humanity, notice he's always calling a man. He's always calling a woman. He's always calling a people because God's not doing anything without humanity. Has anybody ever asked the question, why did God have to come in the form of a man? Why did God have to come into a, in the form of a man? Why did he empty himself and made himself of no reputation? He did it in the form of a man, because if anything is happening on earth, it will happen through human participation. So the word becomes flesh and dwells among us and we behold his glory, full of grace and truth. <laughs> so if God gives us dominion, then God's going to have to come through humanity in order to save. The destiny of the earth in order to bring restoration to humanity that's why God became human <laughs> he became human because he had no other way that's a side note I'm sorry I'm all over the place this is why it's a rant I got nothing's planned nothing scheduled but I do want to emphasize this this point that God's not done yet but God's done a lot of things and all the things that God has done, he's done through his people. Whew. By grace and by design, I love that Stacy. by the very design, yes, by grace and by design, God has made us a part of His story, and that's why you matter. You know, you know. A, a side note: I'm sorry. I, I got 10 minutes, so uh, hopefully I can get all this in. But a little, little quick side note here is: you, people sometimes they get confused. Why, why would Jesus die on the cross for me? You know, why, well, why would God do that? Why would God love me so? Why, why would, why would, why would God sacrifice Himself for me? And sometimes we have this difficulty of understanding that concept because I think we're not fully understanding the fact that God has poured out himself on humanity. God is saving your soul, not in an altruistic way, the way we think of it. God never separated himself from you. You are his identity, his name depends on you. He says, he says, I have saved you. He tells the children of Israel over and over, we are gonna see this throughout the text. He says, I saved you over and over again for my name's sake. God is about restoring his reputation. Yes, he loves you, but he loves you because his identity is in you. He loves you because his name depends on it. He calls you by his name. And so because he calls you by his name, yeah, there's some altruism in it, But guys, there's 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 an agenda in it as well. There's a divine agenda. There's there's, There's a divine agenda. God is saving you for his name's sake. At the end of the day, he didn't save you for your glory. He saved you for his glory. At the end of the day, it's really about him. Side note. And yet God is executing and exercising his righteousness, his justice, his rule, his authority, his dominion through humanity. And what I love about Chronicles is that Chronicles brings all this to light because notice what he says. I'm just, I, let me just pick, I just quickly highlighted it as I was reading it. But look at First Chronicles chapter 14, which we read. Notice the language, notice the diction, notice the tone in verse 11 when he says, so they went up to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. Man, that's something David did, right? Then David said, God has broke through my enemies by my hands like a breakthrough of water. God did it by my hand. By the way, I just chose one verse. You'll see that tone, if you want to, go back through Chronicles, read through it, see those little stories in between along the way. God did it by my hand. It does, right? It almost sounds narcissistic. It does. It absolutely does. I get it. I get it. Here's here's why it isn't narcissistic. It isn't narcissistic because it's not actually about you. (laughs) It's actually about the glory of God. God is doing it through you, but at the end of the day, he's doing it through you for his glory. He's not doing it through you so that you can get a nice house and you can get a nice title and so that you can get a promotion and so that you can. No, it's actually not about you. And that's where the narcissism is removed from it. Does that make sense? And I get it. at first, like, man, this sounds almost narcissistic. But then you can say for God, it can't be because God is the one that created it in the first place. <laughs> right? I mean, it's all about God because God created all things. the point where it'd be offensive to even question that right like it's, it'd be almost offensive to, to even question it I get you being facetious about it but I think some people wrestle with that like man God is a narcissist God only thinks about himself excuse me but the scriptures tell us that it's in him all things consist It's all, it's all about him because everything is in him and he is through everything so of course it's about him <laughs> right? And it can't be At the end of the day These are all extensions of his glory We are in him He is in us And in him all things exist And in him all things consist the Scripture tells that he holds the universe Together by his word He's the one that holds it all together So if anything is happening in my life Any success Can we submit to God has done it by my hand like god has done these things but god is doing these things through humanity i I have to make sure i emphasize this because as we're reading this we're reading the story of what god is doing and what god is doing and i love how chronicles after we're going to read everything chronicles if you want to you can go back and read chronicles after you've read the entire old testament because chronicles is better at the end that's actually when it was written It was written at the end. if you read it after you've read all the books that we read following this, what you're going to see is the author wanted to make sure you understood that the work of God was happening through his people. Through his people. And these are all the people that God is doing it through. We get to another part of the text, and I just want to point this out because I thought it was important. I just want to just point this out before before we close. I got nine minutes before I gotta go. Um. But we see how David is celebrating this this, this breakthrough and what, what God has accomplished by his hand. And I'm I'm using David as an example. But we read in this text, right, uh, about Uzzah. And I just wanted to draw your attention to Uza for a minute because the Ark that has been brought from Kurjath Dream. and it's being brought from Kurjath Dream after they have won the victory and they're carrying the Ark and what we see is a story of the Ark as they were carrying it one of the oxen stumbles as one of the oxen stumbles that's dragging the Ark on this cart causes the cart to stumble and upon causing the cart to stumble Uzzah quickly puts his hand on the ark to keep the ark from falling and Uzzah dies in that moment it's an odd portion of scripture like it should be a frustrating portion of scripture it's an odd portion of scripture because you would think, first of all, why is that there? Number two, why would God do this? Like, why would that happen? The oxen stumbles, Uzzah, it would seem he's doing a noble thing. He's doing a noble thing here. I mean, he's he, he sees the Ark falling, he wants to make sure that the Ark is going to be okay. So he quickly puts his hand out And the moment that he puts his hand out Uzzah dies And of course David doesn't take it well Because the next verse says And David became angry Because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah Therefore that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day David was afraid of God that day The word afraid there the Fearing the Lord This reverence for God This fear of the Lord He says how can I bring the ark of God to me so many things here that we've got to uh, to break down here and I don't have it I don't have it all for you but I want you to pay attention to something David is carrying the ark not by God's permission but by his own volition David takes the ark and he brings the ark and he carries it from courage where it's been sitting to now David's intention of moving the ark from one place to another, to what? To bring the ark closer to him. Uzzah, of course, who David is close to obviously, who's an administrator, and Uzzah and Ohio who, who, who drive this cart never had permission from God in the first place to move the cart. Now the cart tipping over and the ark tipping over sorry um um, the 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 oxen dipping and the cart tipping over so many of so many different stories about this so many different stories about um why this happened and why this transpired and what and I'm not gonna get into the minutia of it but I want to give one point about this first of all who told you to move the ark David second of all didn't God tell David Remember this. Didn't God tell David that David was not going to build the temple? Didn't God tell him that it would be his son, the one that would come after him that would build the temple because of the blood that was on his hands? It's almost as if David wanted to think of his own way of doing this. He had his own method. He said, okay, well, if I can't build the temple, let me just build a tent. And I'm just going to put the ark in the tent because, again, it was a means of power. It was a means of title. It was a symbol of victory. David has his agenda and he's imposing his agenda on God. And the ark tipping over is just symbolic of the fact that there are many of us who think that we're the people who hold God up. It's symbolic of the reality that many of us think that God needs us. And we have this way of tokenizing God taking God and putting him where he's expedient in our lives. We have a tendency of putting God in a place for means of power and authority. How many churches have you seen where pastors who have no authority, no power, no reason to even be in the position that they're in, they'll throw the God thing around as if they're the ones that hold God up. And so they manipulate with the Ark. If there's anything you should get out of this, is that Uzzah being struck by this compels David not to carry the Ark anymore. Actually, what the story points out to is it points out to David going, oh, snap. Y'all boys, we messed up. We should have never, ever took this thing because God told us to leave the thing alone. Now we gotta hear what do we do with it. David knows now that he can't bring it home. And of course, the tragedy is, is he lost a good friend. And so now David get, yeah, he gets the memo. David gets the memo. And so what does David do? David then sends the ark to the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite who apparently nothing happens to him when the ark comes into his presence. Set aside now to carry the ark. Now watch this. Some of you may be saying, okay, I got that part. But we see exactly why Uzzah died. In in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, it's implied when now upon returning to Jerusalem, verse 12, David says to them, you are the heads of your father's houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. David has built the tent, but the ark was not ready to go there. And the reason why the ark wasn't ready to be there is because of this missing ingredient. They needed a person with purpose and calling with authority to carry the very word, the presence, the image of the presence and the word of God. One. Two, that they needed to sanctify themselves. The difference between David and Uzzah then and David now is that David knew who ought to carry the ark and that they ought to be sanctified. The issue was sanctification. And because they weren't sanctified, Uzzah touched a sacred, sanctified thing when he had dirt and blood on his hands. The difference between Uzzah then and David now is David found sanctified men and women of God to transfer the Ark. Not just gifted women of God. Not just proximate men and women of God. Not just people that they liked. Not just people I'm cool with. Pastor, stop putting people you like in roles in ministry. Pastor, stop putting people who simply have a gift to do something to put them in ministry. The question is, are they sanctified to do it? Have they been called to do it? Pastor, some, for, for, for those who are pastors here among us, because they're pastors among us, let me just sense share a word of exhortation. You need to reevaluate what qualifies people to serve at your church. It's not, because of, it's not because of proximity. It's not because they've been around all this time. It's not because they got history. It's not because of tenure. Are they sanctified? Are they sanctified? Are they called? It's not gonna be the people you like. David didn't take the people he liked this time. He took the people that were sanctified for the work of ministry. The question is, is how do you evaluate the people who carry the word, who carry the ministry of God? There are ministries right now that are crumbling and failing because you put people you liked and people who were in tenure, not people who were called. Sanctified for the work of ministry. Sanctified to carry the ark. I'm sorry, I went a few minutes over, but I need to just at least share that with y'all. And then I'm gonna draw your attention to something that we'll talk about on Thursday since I won't be here tomorrow, is that last verse, because now David goes into, David now is coming in with pomp and splendor and celebration with musicians who have been given the charge of music, skillful musicians. They're coming in to worship and they're bringing the ark in and David is dancing like a fool. David looks like a complete fool, dancing like a fool. And Michal, Saul's daughter, looks through the window seeing David walking in Dancing in, looking like a complete clown. Whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. We're gonna talk about that on Thursday. Stop right there. (laughs) Stop right there. I love you, family. If there's anything I want you to leave with is this thought. is God's not done yet. God's done a lot. But God's not done yet. God is doing it through you. And yet, if God's going to use you, let's come before him with sanctified holy hands. Father, bless us today, Lord, as we engage throughout this day, Father. Lord, remind us of the truth of your word, Lord. And all that we do today, Father, just guide us. Got our hearts, got our minds, Lord. We're encouraged by the fact that you've included us in your story. We're encouraged by the fact, Lord, that you have given us the privilege to participate, Lord, with you. And Lord, we just ask, Lord, as we participate with you, Lord, let us, Lord, seek your will to be sanctified in your name. Wash us, Lord God. Wash us, cleanse us, make us whiter than snow. Lord, that we would glorify you in all that we do. And we say that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.